Job chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees, but now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received it, the whisper of it. Amid the thoughts from visions of the night, when the deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more will those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth? Between the morning and even evening they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we do ask that the things of earth would grow strangely dim. Father, our minds are, and thoughts and our hearts are scattered uh, by the cares of the world. And so we pray that through your word in Job this morning that we will come again to see what we must value and what your heart truly is for us. So we ask that you will be with us in the time of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I do want to begin with a, a more complicated and big phrase, uh, the retributive principle. Um, now, I'm not going to give you the textbook definition for the retributive principle because it's something that if I just give it to you in our common vernacular, you you are very familiar with it. It is everywhere. And it's simply that those who do good receive good. Those who do bad get bad. That is, in essence, the retributive principle. And, and it is found on the pages of Scripture. We, we see it, for example, in Psalm 19, or sorry, Proverbs 19, uh, verse 15, where we read, Slothfulness casts into a deep sleep, and the idle person will suffer hunger. We also see it in Proverbs 13, uh, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Uh, even in the New Testament, we read this because Galatians chapter 6, we, we, we read, uh, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And so the principle essentially is this. You reap what you sow. 
That is the retributive principle. These are the rules of life. Do right and right will come to you. Do wrong, you can expect calamity in your life. And even if we just take the Bible out of the equation just for a minute, we know this from all over in the world. Everyone will see this at work. For example, the, the employee who's working hard in the workplace, um, the one who's faithful to the company and pours in their work, they will be the one who is likely to be advanced, to be promoted within the workplace. Um, what about the, the uh, athlete, the one who is you know, working hard, who has discipline and who is going through all of the, the, the practice and exercises the exact way that they should, they're likely to be the one who wins or receives the medal. Um, we think of the child, even in my home, the children who are obeying the parents, they're the ones who are given more freedom. The children who are disobeying the parents, well, guess what? Their freedom is simply removed and removed until there's none left, right? This is the retributive principle. And we see a brilliant example of this is found in Acts chapter 28, where Paul's ship was wrecked on the shore of Malta. You recall this scene where they, they wrecked and the native people ended up helping out Paul and his companions. Now, it's amazing because the retributive principle is all over the place and it's even found on, a, on, a, on an island 2,000 years ago. Uh, Luke explains what happens there. He says, after we were brought safely um, to shore, we learned that the island that they were on is called Malta, and the native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it began to rain and was cold. Now when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. And when the native people saw the creature was hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he had escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, Paul, he shook off the creature in, into the fire and he suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that no misfortune had come to him, they changed their minds. They said, huh, he must be a God. So you see how this principle works. A bad thing happened to him. Ah, he must be a murderer. Well, the snake bite doesn't actually poison or do anything. Ah, he must be good or at least maybe even a God. It's logical. This is the retributive principle at work. And yet this morning, we're going to push back on that principle just a bit here. As we consider the pages of Job, we're going to push back and say, uh, not that the retributive principle is not true, but rather we want to highlight that there's always more to the story. There's always more going on. And what is generally true is not in every single case always true. It's, it's a principle that we see coming to the surface of Job's friends' conversation as they speak poetically back and forth with Job. So when we hear from Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar this morning, we're, we're hearing in their speeches this principle coming to, percolating up to the top. It's coming to the surface. And rather than taking each of these in turn, so that we begin in chapter 4, and then I cover all of chapter 5 and 6 and so on, rather my time will be distilling this entire section down as we paint the picture to see, first, Job's condition. Then second, we'll look and see Job's quote-unquote friends. And then we'll conclude our time by looking at Job's hope. So, 
If you have read through the book of Job, no doubt, like me as an impatient American, this middle section that goes on for 35-some chapters, it seems rather long. Now, if you're like me, you really get fascinated by chapters 1 and 2, the scene with Satan as the accuser as he's addressing the Lord and they're coming to this agreement about Job and all the calamity that strikes Job. And then if you're like me, you get really interested in the last little bit where the Lord shows up and, and as Job's been crying out for vindication, finally he's vindicated and he's restored even more than he had at the beginning. If you're like me, those are the pieces where you, where you hone in on. And then in the middle, you're like quickly trying to get to the good stuff, get to the good bits. And, and it makes you wonder because you say, I'm reading chapters, you know, four or three on up to, to 38 and, and following. And you say, why couldn't we just condense this down? Why, why not just have this longer middle section just be a couple short chapters in the middle? And I didn't read this anywhere, but as I, as I was pondering the length of this, even reading and rereading through this section we're in this morning, I think a sense of understanding that there is a reason this middle section is so long. Because who here, going through a trial, ever says, this wasn't long enough? You, if you're in the hospital bed for a week, that's a week too long. If you're going through a relationship drama issue with your family members for years, that's years too long. See, all of us, we recognize and we know that at the end of the day, every time you're going through these trials, it always feels too long. And I wonder if part of us, when we're reading this and saying that to ourselves, isn't so that we understand, like Job, this went on far longer than he would have ever desired to see. But before we get the good stuff, we we must grieve. We must sit with Job in the heaviness of it all. And I want to recall to your mind the, the story of this, that Job is a great man. He's a good man, wealthy, blameless, upright, turning from evil. And as we saw in the opening chapters where the accuser, the Satan or Satan, he is the one that, the, that is addressing the Lord there. And He says, look, if you take away Job's children, you take away Job's business, you take away Job's health, he will curse you to your face. And what we find happens after Job loses his health, his business, and his children, quite the opposite happens. Job declares, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we read that Job did not sin with his lips. It's amazing to us because of how very likely, considering his condition, he could have. And and now we're going to see this in detail because through the cycle of of speeches that we see in chapters 4 through 14, we see Job in, in several spots. He's highlighting just how bad things are. Friends, Job is not doing well at all. We, we ought to put off this idea that maybe he's been in this sort of bad position and he's sort of resolved like, well, it is the new normal. So I'm just going to settle into what this place is. I'm going to kind of tighten up the belt and just let it be where it's at. He's not doing that. It's so bad he cannot do that. He's in such a poor state that he is unrecognizable. Nothing has changed in this place. Remember when his friends first came to to see him? They didn't even recognize their friend because he was in such a bad state. He was covered with sores and with boils on his skin. Um, Chapter 2 made us aware of of how bad that was. But then in chapter 7 here, verse 5, He says, my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens and then it breaks out afresh. 
Now, I recall when one of my children had a really bad wound, what I will call a quote-unquote gnarly gash in their head. And I put, you know, um, the washcloth on there and just kind of held it there and just thought at some point I got to face the news and take a look. And so I peel it back. And after peeling it back to see how bad things were, I just put the washcloth back on and said, this is why the doctors and the nurses get paid the big bucks and we will go visit them. I think if we could have seen Job in this moment, we like his friends would want him to just keep the blanket over him. He is in a bad place physically. Job's own flesh is, is, is looking ugly, but not only that, his, he has a pain in his stomach so that he says things like, Chapter 6, verse 5, does the wild donkey bray, that is, you know, uh, not neigh, but bray, when he has his grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Uh, and Job's point is, hey, when livestock have food, good food, they, they shut up. They just eat. They're happy to be eating. But here I am, I'm not eating, and I'm like the donkey that's braying, like the ox that's lowing. I am calling out, not eating, because... I am in misery. My appetite isn't there, he says in, in chapter 6, verse 7. I'm mourning. I'm not eating. But worse, not only is Job's skin damaged and his stomach in knots, he is also not sleeping. Chapter 7, verse 4, he says, When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? But the night is long, and I'm full of tossing and turning till dawn. Now, some of you mothers, you, you know this tossing and turning. You, you understand being up through the night. Um, and some of you here who have been through pains of aging or other ailments, you know tossing and turning and not getting any rest. So too, Job here, he knows what that's like, this feeling of you're, you're not ever really sleeping, and nor do you really feel like you're awake. I think they call that, you, you feel, and, I, and I've been there, where you just feel like a zombie. You're, never, you're not really alive, and you're not really sleeping. You're in this middle state, and it is so draining. And, and here, um, while he's in this state, he's questioning why this has all happened. At times, he seems to give up hope. At other times, he seems like he's just hanging on by a bare thread. But if we flip over to chapter 9 here, in your Bibles, and we cut in at verse 13, chapter 9. He says that God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him uh, bowed the helpers of Rahath. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summon him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multi multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If I contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If, I, if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? In summary, we might say that Job is saying to God, how, can, how will you answer me in all this? All I know is that it seems like God is not really hearing my cry right now. It seems like he has no regard for me. I'm being crushed without reason. Look at verses 20 through 21 there in chapter 9. He says, though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would per prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. So then Job, 
he comes to this unique worldview. I think if previously he held to the retributive principle, he is now out loud suggesting that really maybe it's not that the retributive principle is not true. That good things happen to good and bad things happen to bad. He's going to come to a whole different conclusion here. Catch this in 22 through 24. He says, it is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who is it? So Job, no rest, unrecognizable, racked with pain, living like a zombie, in a state of no sleep, he comes to conclusions, again, as we've said in the past, that are rash and irrational. He's thinking up a new new uh, religion, a new worldview, if you will, because he can't make sense of where he's at. And so one might respond to him wisely, like his three friends did. Recall at the end of chapter two, how we discovered his three friends show up and they just sit with him in silence. They just mourn with him. And again, if you weren't with us last week, I just encourage you when our fellow Christians and believers are in suffering and pain, just resist the urge to try to fix it with human wisdom. Sit with your friends in silence. Hear that pain and just say, I'm here and I care. This is where Job's at. And we see now as his friends turn to consider how to speak to him, uh, it's interesting. Uh, We we see Job's friends here, uh, quote-unquote friends. Eliphaz is noted as being the first one to speak to Job in each of the three cycles. So recall, we have three friends and three cycles where we go through a friend speaking Job, a friend Job, back and forth for three times. And Eliphaz begins, and he always seems to be a little bit more of the, I don't know if he's the first among equals, but he definitely seems to be the one who's a bit more reserved. And we get a taste of him at the beginning of chapter 4 that we read earlier. So if you'll flip back with me to chapter 4, and we'll consider just a few of those words at the beginning here, verses 2 through 5, where Eliphaz says, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you've instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling in. You have made firm the feeble knees, but now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? And so, in other words, Job, what we're about to say to you is the exact same type of things that you've said to other people. What we're saying to you is nothing new. We're saying the exact type of things to you that you would say to anybody else if you were in our shoes. Which is simply this, repent and do right so that you can get right. That's the idea here with verses six through seven, where he says, is not your fear of God, your confidence and the integrity uh, of your ways, your hope. Remember, Job, you already know this. Remember this, who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? And there again, what we're hearing out of Job's friends is the retributive principle. Essentially, this is the message of Job's comforters. Job, there's no doubt you've screwed up. That's why you're in this place. 
This is why you've lost it all. We see this example uh, uh, again and again with, with uh, Bildad at, at chapter 8. So if we look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, Bildad speaks, and he will say a similar message here with a bit of a twist. Chapter 8, verse 1, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things, and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. I mean, here, Bildad, he ratchets up this entire situation because he's saying, as he's speaking to to Job, he says, Job, you want to know why your children perished? Your children perished because of their sin. This is how the world works. You do bad, you get bad. This is why they perished. Now, Job, listen, there's hope for you, though. There's hope for you. Your children are gone, but you're still around. And so there's time, Job, if you will just simply do right, repent, Maybe things can turn around for you. And it's slightly ironic because that's exactly what Job has been doing. That is exactly what happened. When Job lost his livelihood and his children, he worshipped. And after he lost all of his health, he acknowledged the Lord. He said, shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? No, see here is a man who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and, and then as if to just take lemons and salt and, and as they're trying to massage their friend Job with his wounds to help him, they're just rubbing in salt and lemon juice into these wounds. If we flip over to chapter 11, here we'll hear, hear Zophar begin to speak. Verses 1 through 6, Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? And a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open up his lips to you, and he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. That last line there is so biting. He, he, Zophar is essentially saying, the Lord is wise and you can fool us, but you can't fool him. Now, if he would just come and speak, he'd let you know of the myriad of ways that you have sinned. Oh, and by the way, Job, verse 6, you're getting less than you deserve. This is awful and bad. Job, you deserve worse. I mean, the heaviness of his friends, quote-unquote friends, coming to him. And this is why we say, with friends like these, who needs enemies? And so, what we're getting is the retributive principle on loop. Job, if you do right, you get right. If you do bad, you get bad. And Job, you seem to be getting bad. Ergo, you must have done something bad. And right there, all the friends, after basically repeating this in three different ways, could have took the mic and just, mic drop, we proved you wrong, so fix it. Yet church, you need to understand, church, hear me on this point, part of wisdom and wisdom literature, which the book of Job is, 
is trying to reveal to us the way the world normally operates, what reality is typically like, which is why Proverbs, like to train up a child in the way they should go and they will not depart. Friends, we have to understand that's not a promise. It's a proverb. It's a wise saying. It's a snapshot of the way things typically go, but there are and should remain an understanding that a child can be raised up in a perfectly good, godly Christian home and yet still walk away from the truth, walk away from the Lord. And so the principle that you reap what you sow is true, but you can't force it to work in all circumstances, can you? At least not in our earthly timeline. It was funny, this, as I opened up this morning and I was saying the employee who works hard in the workplace will always be promoted. And, and I was talking about, you know, that's what we typically see. And some were shaking their heads going, no, because they've experienced and they know what that's like because that's not how the world works. In some cases, the employee is hardworking and is promoted. And other times, they could just be laid off. And sometimes, the disciplined athlete does win the race and get the gold. Other times, they end up with a fracture and they go home in crutches. See, this is, this is how the world works. Jesus says that his heavenly father makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Friends, we must understand as we walk away from the book of Job and our time in it with an understanding that good things happen to good and bad people and bad things happen to good and bad people. You must have that down. And as much as I think some of us here would shake our head and nod saying, yes, I agree with this. And yet at the same time, even as you're trying to follow the Lord and trust in the Lord and you find yourself in that place, shaking your head because you are upheaved, you're distraught while trying to follow the Lord and calamity comes upon you. So you understand the disconnect. I think some of us know the reality of this up here, but it needs to percolate down to the heart so that when you are genuinely trying to follow the Lord and you genuinely go through travesty, you understand there's more always going on behind the scenes. There's more going on in the story. See, not understanding this leads us to say unhelpful things. Much like Job's friends, which is why much of Job's reply is not only him lamenting his loss, but Job is saying, you're not helping me. We get a a taste of this over in verse uh, uh, 12 of chapter 13. He says, your maxims are proverbs of ash. Your defenses are defenses of clay. And I think Job is responding. He hears the, the cycle of the three friends, each one sharing in turn. In chapter 13, now he's kind of saying, I'm hearing all that you're saying and it's come to nothing for me because all that you're saying is essentially burning up. If only Job had a true friend to turn to, to find some hope in. This is where we turn to consider Job's hope in chapter 13. Look at uh, verses 13 through 17 with me where Job says this. Let me have some silence and I will speak and let me come on uh, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation that the godless shall not come before him. 
Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Now, recall that this is poetry. And if I could reword this in, in a way that I might say it to my own friends, if I was in, in Job's position, in, in kind of a last bold, uh, you know, uh, last ditch effort, I would say something like this. Friends, would you just be quiet and, and let me talk to God? Would you let me share with the Lord and I know this might even put my own life at risk, but I can't even hope in that at this point. I've got nothing left. As you can see, what's left for me to even hope in my life? No, no, no. Friends, be quiet and let me talk to God and, and, and let me make my case before him because my hope is really in him. And my case I want to argue with him is that I'm innocent. I haven't really done some great quote-unquote sin. And I know that the way of salvation is all that hope in him shall see him. And those who reject God will not stand before him. But those who hope in him and have faith in him, he will hear their case. Right? Am I not right? Is that not how this goes? And for now, Job will receive no answer. He will not get anything in reply. We then find in chapter 14 a deep insight and thought because Job, prior to the coming of Jesus, he's reflecting and longing for a renewal. He's longing for something that I would interject is ultimately the resurrection. And and that would make it clear that his sin has been truly dealt with. Look at chapter 14 at verse 13. He says, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that is the grave that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a time set and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. And then you would number my steps and you would not keep watch over my sin. You see that? And my transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. Church, we do not have to hope or long for God's wrath to pass over us. We don't have to long for our sin to be covered up in a bag. What Job longs for is true in Jesus Christ, truly and fully. God has passed over our sin. God has concealed it up to look at it no longer. Friends, what we believe about Job right now is true, that Job is not in Sheol, that he's not dead in the grave. What we believe, as I speak this minute, about Job is that Job's sin has been covered and that he is standing with his maker face to face in joy. And that line in verse 14 where he says here, if a man dies, shall he live again? See, for Job, that's no longer even a question. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has made that a reality. If a man dies, we declare he will live again. And sinners who by faith have been made righteous through Christ will have happened to them what has happened to Jesus Christ. Resurrection. We, we see that at some level, that is what's on Job's mind. And I, I want you to look at chapter 14 at verse 7 here, where we do read, he says, For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, that its shoots will not cease. 
See, Job, at this time, he's fretting that that will not be the case. He's worried that that won't be the case. He, we all see this out there in, as we're walking through the, the Mount Hood National Forest. You know, even here on our property, we have trees that have been cut down, but the sprout comes out again and grows. This is what Job's thinking of. Isn't there hope for even a tree? But he goes, for me, I don't see it at this point. But if we back up here a bit, we say for the Christian, this is exactly the case. What Job hopes for, what he longs for, and what's completely absent from his friend's mouth is a thing called grace, a thing called mercy. Back in chapter 9, verse 15, he says, Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Friends, he's longing for mercy. He longs for grace. And when his friends speak, there's no grace. There's only you do right, you get right, you do wrong, you get wrong. And you have to understand, grace is really what's going to be at the very heart of all of this. It's what's at the very heart, I argue, of the Bible. If you don't understand grace, you don't understand the cross. You don't understand Jesus. C.S. Lewis was asked, hey, um, just tell us, what is really the big difference between Christianity and all the other world's religions? And very quickly, he didn't even stumble. He just said, that's easy. Grace. Because he understood. If you get grace, you get the gospel. And, and, and this leads us to conclude, church, that when life doesn't add up and we're in the position like Job and it doesn't add up, we must cry out to the Lord for grace. We must still have hope in the Lord. When the world shouts at us, the only thing that's true is the retributive principle. We must point and say, no, I'm pointing to the cross to show you that's not true. Because the retributive principle says you do bad, you get bad. But we point at the cross and we say, here's the most innocent man, the most blameless man who ever walked. And he faced the most grievous, heinous evil to ever come upon him. And because he took that for us, our hope is fulfilled in him that he replaced you. He replaced me on the cross. And that If a man dies in Jesus Christ, he will live again. That's what Job wishes for. And in Jesus, that is what is completed. Our transgressions are sealed and our iniquity is covered. Friends, we we believe this is true. And this is what leads us to sing as we'll close out here shortly with, Our God is truly for us. We sing that we don't need to fear the battle. We won't fear the night. We will walk the valley with you by our side. You will go before us. You will lead the way. We have found a refuge. Only you can save. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that you are for us. And we know that you are for Job. And we know he's crying out for vindication in this moment. And the tension just rests there. So Lord, as we consider as we consider to, to continue to look And how his friends respond, Lord, would you teach us and mold us to see that there's always more going on. That, Lord, your your world is a complex world. There are things that we can't explain. But we know that you are good. So we pray that our hope would be ultimately resting in that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.